So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Bishop Rhodes. Thanks, Emily. Thank you very much, Emily. Great to see all of you. I love uh, coming to Theology on Tap. Now, especially on such a cold night that you came out, I'm really impressed. But I'd like to already invite you next year at this time, we're going to have Theology on Tap in Panama. (laughs) So a personal invitation, start saving your money. And I know it's a little expensive. It was over $2,900. So... I don't know if you heard, but I was out begging, and now the price is 2400 something. I got a $500, uh, some, uh, someone to give $500 for every uh, young adult or, uh, or um, what would be the others, the teens to, who are over 16 years old to come. So I'm trying to help a little bit. But you're all received now a personal invitation next January. It's going to be as cold as it is here, so just think about 90 degrees in Panama, Pope Francis, you're all welcome. This was an interesting topic that was presented when Sean wrote to me about this topic, uh, darkness and light, finding hope in hard times. It really seemed so appropriate because of, you know, what does all this mean? You know, that, you know, we look at natural disasters. We see the political polarization in our country. We see things like wars and conflicts all over the place. We see the issues with refugees. We see environmental destruction. So, you know, and these are things, uh, Sean said, these are some of the things on, on the minds of young adults. Like, how do we um, find the light of hope amidst these difficult times? So, you know, this is central, when you think about it, to Christianity. Ours is a religion of hope. So we talk about the three great theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And we hear a lot about faith. We hear a lot about love. But right in the middle is hope. So this is part of our Christian identity, or at least it should be. And it's a theological virtue. In other words, it's something that comes from God. It's a, it's a gift. And I think it's always helpful to look at the catechism of the Catholic Church. What does the catechism say? It defines hope. By the way, any quotes I give, I have on the handout so that you can read along. And uh, that might be helpful to you. So I... This is the definition of hope in the Catechism. Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's important to point out That like faith and love, hope is a theological virtue. There are other virtues that are natural virtues or cardinal virtues. Here we're talking about a theological virtue, which means it's a gift from God to help us on our journey to heaven where alone we can find perfect happiness. It's called theological because it's received 
as a gift through God's power. So, so we should pray for this. It's a virtue that focuses on God himself. The virtue of faith believes in God and in what God has revealed. The virtue of hope grows out of faith. It's linked to faith. So how do we open ourselves to the gift of hope? How do we live in hope when there's all these problems around us? How do we persevere in hope when there are so many horrible things going on in the world? Or even maybe in our own personal lives, there could be, you know, sometimes our lives can become a mess, you know, to be honest. Um, So I think the scriptures can help us. When we read the Bible, the Bible is filled with accounts of tragedies and disasters of all kinds. Did you ever notice that? I mean, read the Bible, you can read rape, murder, genocide, military collapse, political distress, all these things that we, we worry about today. I mean, you see a lot of this right in Scripture. But in the midst of these awful situations, we find people who lived in hope. I mean, think about Jeremiah. I mean, of all the prophets, I always have special sympathy for Jeremiah. He hoped in the Lord when he was being attacked. He hoped in the Lord as he watched the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. I mean, what an awful time. Or think of King David when he was being relentlessly pursued by Saul. And, you know, he just, he hoped in God. And we see it in, throughout Scripture. Think of St. Paul and all he went through. He hoped in God as he was being mocked and tortured and finally put to death. Of course, we see this virtue of hope in the martyrs of the church. So in the theological sense, to hope is to know that God finally is the sovereign master of the universe. All these great men of hope and women of hope, like the Blessed Virgin Mary herself, believed in God's power and his triumph. They believed passionately in God. Now, this doesn't mean that they were optimists. Because, and I want you to be careful about this. Don't confuse optimism with hope. Hope is more than being optimistic. You know, these great figures didn't believe that bad things would not happen. Bad things do happen. A person of authentic hope is not compelled to hold that suffering, tragedy, conflict, and even the deaths of innocent people will simply disappear through the intervention of God in this life. Despite all darkness, they had the great hope that in God, life and love would eventually triumph. They believed that the Lord was their rock, no matter what happened, as we read in the Psalms. The Lord is my rock and my salvation. There's no authentic hope without faith. My favorite work on hope is the second encyclical of Pope 
Benedict the 16th. Spe salvi. In hope we are saved. It's the title in Latin, spe salvi. In that very deep and profound reflection, Pope Benedict, early on, recalled the story of a woman who endured more than her share of unjust calamities, St. Josephine Bakita. Raise your hand if you ever heard of St. Josephine Bakita. Many of you did, not everybody. I found it interesting that the Pope would use this young African slave as an example for his teaching to the world about Christian hope. So I have a a quote there. It's pretty long. The next quote on your page, first page in the middle, a little bit. This is what Pope Benedict wrote. At the age of nine, she, that's Josephine Bakita, was kidnapped by slave traders, beaten till she bled, and sold five times in the slave markets of Sudan. Oops, there's a mistake there. Eventually, she found herself working as a slave for the mother of the wife of a general. And there she was flogged every day till she bled. As a result of this, she bore 144 scars throughout her life. After the terrifying masters who had owned her up to that point, Bakita came to know a totally different kind of master, the living God, the God of Jesus Christ. Up to that time, she had known only masters who despised and maltreated her, or at best, considered her a useful slave. She came to know that this Lord even knew her, that he had created her, that he actually loved her. What is more, this master had himself accepted the destiny of being flogged, and now he was waiting for her at the Father's right hand. Now she had hope. No longer simply the modest hope of finding masters who would be less cruel, but the great hope. I am definitively loved, and whatever happens to me, I am awaited by this love, and so my life is good. After reading that, I could just sit down. That says it all. That says it all. I think Pope Benedict used this example of St. Josephine Bakita to get to the heart of Christian hope. It comes from the faith that we are definitively loved and whatever happens to us, whatever happens in history and in the world, we are awaited by our master's love. And so our life is good. Basically, Josephine Bakita encountered the God of Jesus Christ. And this encounter is what brings liberation. It brings joy and it brings peace. After this encounter, Josephine Bakita felt compelled to extend this liberation to others, to the greatest possible number of people. She couldn't keep this great hope to herself. So hope leads to love.
to reaching out to others with the love of Jesus Christ, sharing the great hope, the joy of the gospel, the peace that comes from a deep knowledge of Christ and God's unconditional love. I really like how Pope Benedict speaks of the definitive love of God as the great hope. He writes about all the little hopes that we have in life. And these are good, but they don't always work out. You know, you hope to have a great job and you don't get one or whatever. So this is what the Pope writes, the next quote on your handout. Day by day, man experiences many greater or lesser hopes, different in kind, according to the different periods of his life. Sometimes one of these hopes may appear to be totally satisfying without any need for other hopes. Young people, and I think of you here, young people can have the hope of a great and fully satisfying love, the hope of a certain position in their profession or of some success that will prove decisive for the rest of their lives. When these hopes are fulfilled, however, it becomes clear that they were not, in reality, the whole. It becomes evident that man has need of a hope that goes further. It becomes clear that only something infinite will suffice for him, something that will always be more than he can ever attain. So we walk in this life with this great hope of something infinite, the hope of eternal happiness forever. Think again of that definition of hope from the Catechism. It's the virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promises. That's the great hope Pope Benedict is talking about. It goes further than all our little hopes. And I would say it's intimately linked to one historical event that also transcends history, the resurrection of Jesus. This talk, entitled Darkness and Light, Finding Hope in Hard Times, would not be complete without talking about the light. What light? Clearly the light of Christ and the light of his resurrection. For St. Paul, when you read St. Paul's letters, what is hope? In St. Paul's letters, Hope is a person. It is Christ himself. And it's also an event, the resurrection. St. Paul writes beautifully and profoundly about the resurrection as the crowning truth of our faith. We can think about this in the context of the darkness that we see and experience in our lives and in the world. Jesus' resurrection involves the redemption of all suffering, physical, psychological, and spiritual. I invite you to to listen to this passage 
from the book of the prophet Isaiah, which St. Paul sees fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. This is Isaiah chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. The first uh, quote on the second page of your handout. God will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Well, Jesus' resurrection is the fulfillment of this prophecy. The redemption of all suffering. That's why the resurrection is at the center of Christian doctrine. Virtually every dimension of the Christian life draws its strength and fulfillment from it. In fact, St. Paul is so adamant about this, about the foundational status of the resurrection, that he declares to the Corinthians in his first letter to them, in chapter 15, verses 13 to 19, the quote is in your handout, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. Pretty strong words. So the resurrection provides the context for the whole of our Christian life. And it also provides the context through which we suffer. By the way, I have to tell you something about hope and suffering. Today I had Mass at Memorial Hospital. And I really believe in God's providence. Um, after Mass, they had a little reception for me and was greeting the healthcare workers at Memorial. Then I visited, they asked me to visit this little ba- newborn baby to give a blessing. Um, and then there was an, a, one of the nurses said, Bishop, please visit where I work. I'm up at ICU, intensive care unit. And uh, so I said, okay, I'm really, I had an appointment. I said, I, I, def- I will. I'm running a little late, but I'll come up. So I went up to the ICU and just got in to the ICU. There's like 20-some rooms. And someone came up and said, Father, didn't know I was the bishop, Father, there's a man dying. Uh, in room 19, and his family's around the bed. Could you please come? So I did. You know, they didn't know I was the bishop. Um, and I, uh, I came in, and the man was, was laboring to breathe. He was clearly dying. And I didn't have holy oils, but there was a, another priest there, the chaplain. I asked him to go get oils. Uh, so I was praying there with them. He came back, and I anointed him. 
and continued the litany of saints, you know, that you say when someone's dying. We can pray the litany of the saints. And then that beautiful prayer, go Christian soul. I forget how it goes, but it's a, it's a beautiful prayer. And it's, you know, basically entrusting the person to God's mercy. So I said those words, go Christian soul to meet your Lord and Savior. And then I, the end of the prayer, amen. He died right at that moment. Now, is that a coincidence? I mean, here I was, what, I mean, my even going to the ICU and to be going into that room, saying the prayers, I didn't have the oils, the priest went to get the oils, I got them, gave him the last rites, said the prayer, and with the family, he just passed away when, I, when we said, amen. Anyhow, talk about Christian hope. I got off my topic here. But I, I thank God for the graces that come in moments that we never expect. The connection between suffering, the cross, and the resurrection is particularly important because the resurrection provides meaning and redemption to the seeming negativity of suffering because it transforms suffering into a pathway toward unconditional love and eternal joy. Notice that every time Jesus predicts his passion, he also predicts his resurrection. They're inseparable. And it's the same in our lives. We should view our suffering in the same way that Jesus viewed his suffering, as inseparably connected to our resurrection in glory with him. So Christian hope, founded in the resurrection of Christ, includes the hope of the transformation of our bodies in spirit, power, and glory. And it's not just an individualistic hope. It is hope of communion with our brothers and sisters. That's why scripture gives us the image of heaven as a banquet. It's the perfect loving communion with Jesus and all others in the kingdom. It's the communion of saints. With all the sufferings in this life, we still can live in hope because of the resurrection when suffering is redeemed. We can embrace the cross with the knowledge that suffering has a purpose to help us toward our salvation and help us bring others to their salvation. Suffering can be offered as loving self-sacrifice to God for the salvation of souls and the strength of the mystical body of Christ. And in this way, suffering becomes grace. Also, we have hope even in suffering because we know God is compassionately present to us in our times of suffering. In fact, through it, God guides and inspires us toward our own and others' salvation. God can transform our suffering into holiness and love if we are open. The passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, remembered and made present at every celebration of the Eucharist, is at the heart of our faith and the source of our hope. It's the great mystery of love, the Eucharist, that gives us the great hope that Pope Benedict talks about, that saints like Josephine Bakita 
experienced and embraced. Now, there are two things that can destroy hope. They are the two great sins against hope. Despair and presumption. They are opposite vices, and both are temptations today. I think I said as one of the questions, I'd be interested in what you think among young adults, which is the greater temptation, despair or presumption? Many fall into one or the other of these sins against hope. First, despair. This is in your handout. This is the definition in the catechism. By despair, man ceases to hope for his personal salvation from God, for help in attaining it, or for the forgiveness of his sins. Despair is contrary to God's goodness, to his justice, for the Lord is faithful to his promises and to his mercy. Of course, when we think of despair, we think of people like Judas. Despair is giving up. It happens when one doesn't believe that God can save him or her. When it's fully deliberate, despair is a mortal sin. One who despairs no longer asks God for help. It may involve one despairing because of sin, falling into the air one cannot be forgiven. We must be careful here However, not to presume that every person who loses hope is necessarily committing this great sin of despair, because a very common mental illness is depression, which can have many causes. Probably most suicides result from such a pathological illness, not necessarily the sin of despair. For healthy people, though, hope can sometimes be hard. Think of all the trials of Job in the Old Testament. He was tempted to despair because of the tragic losses in his life. But Job didn't despair. He would proclaim in the midst of all his sufferings, I know that my Redeemer lives. There are also psalms of lamentation in the Old Testament. If you're ever feeling down, it's good to pray these psalms. The psalmist even complains to God, and one can see how hard it is for the psalmist to find hope, but he does. You can also think about the spiritual darkness of the saints. Struggling with hope is not unusual even in the lives of the saints. But they persevered. They continued to pray while living in darkness. Through the darkness of their faith and the secret power of their hope, they became great saints. Think about Mother Teresa and her darkness. Or think about St. Therese. She wrote about it. Think about what was going on inside John Paul II, those last two years of his life, when he was losing so much of his his health. Now, 
The other sin against hope is presumption. And I have a quote there from the Catechism. There are two kinds of presumption. Either man presumes upon his own capacities, hoping to be able to save himself without help from on high, or he presumes upon God's almighty power of his mercy, hoping to obtain his forgiveness without conversion and glory without merit. While despair is too little hope, we can say that presumption is too much. More precisely, presumption is a false hope because it produces a confidence not based on trust in God, but on our own powers to gain this happiness while neglecting the means that God offers. It's directly against theological hope to mock the mercy of God by delaying repentance, for example, or the sacrament of reconciliation, or good works, in the hope, which isn't real hope, it's presumption, that after a bad life, we can have a deathbed conversion. Presumption can be expressed by a statement like this. God is good. He will understand why I'm doing what the church tells me is sin, and he will forgive. The prophets confronted this, this presumption, among the people of their times who worshipped idols and oppressed the poor in the confidence that because they were members of the chosen people, they would be saved. You know, that was presumption. Yeah, they could do oppress the poor, they could worship idols, but we're God's chosen people. We don't have to worry. Remember how John the Baptist denounced this idea? John the Baptist said, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You know, Jesus used even stronger words about presumption. He said in John chapter 8, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing the works of your father. You belong to your father, the devil, and you willingly carry out your father's desires. That's Jesus speaking. Now, there are two heresies in church history that show the two kinds of presumption. The one heresy promotes the notion that we're able to save ourselves. You know what that heresy is? Pelagianism. Pelagianism. It was a one-sided emphasis on good works, presuming that we can save ourselves by our good works. Then we have the opposite kind of presumption that was really a reaction against Pelagianism. Martin Luther. Martin Luther's insistence on faith alone, presuming that God will save us no matter how we live. Both Pelagius and Luther wanted to reform Christian life, but their ideas led to these exaggerations that are presumptuous. Now, in light of these sins against hope, 
we can state these following negative norms. Father Benedict Ashley, who's a Dominican, gave these norms that I think are very helpful to us. Number one, never despair of the mercy of God, no matter what our sins may be. Number two, never presume that we will attain eternal life without sincerely striving to keep God's commandments, or that because of God's mercy, we can sin with impunity. So, he's saying no to despair, no to presumption. And then number three, never lose trust that God hears and answers according to his wisdom and merciful will our prayers for ourselves and others, especially for the coming of God's kingdom. And then Father Ashley formulates a positive norm for the theological virtue of hope that I think is pretty helpful. It's the last paragraph on that page of your handout. Since union with God is the ultimate goal of human life, which cannot be reached unless we hope to attain it and strive for it by the aid of grace, we, the baptized, must continue firmly to hope for eternal life in God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, in spite of our sins and trials in this life, even to death. Now, I'd like to finish to say that we can find hope in hard times, I think, in three fundamental ways. Number one, prayer. By lifting up our minds and hearts to God, we're focusing on the source of our hope. We place our lives in his hands. That's what we do when we pray. So I recommend praying the, the act of hope, which is at the bottom of that third page. Also, the Psalms are great, um, great way to pray. Prayer is time spent with the one whose love lifts us up. Like St. Josephine Bakita, we experience in prayer that we are definitively loved, and whatever to ha- happens to us, we know we are awaited by love, and so our life is good. We learn in prayer to have the conviction expressed by St. Paul in the 8th chapter of his letter to the Romans, that nothing, no one, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he gives that whole list. You know, neither trial, nor distress, nor persecution, nor sword, you know, he gives that whole list. Nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's my favorite scripture passage, by the way, Romans 8. Number two, recommendation from me, sacraments. As the memorial of Christ's death and resurrection, the Holy Eucharist is the sacrament of our great hope. The sacrament of of the Eucharist. There we see the victory. We see it's the memorial of Christ's death and resurrection. The sacrament of penance, of course, we don't often think about, but it gives us hope in the forgiveness of our sins. The hope that destroys the despair of guilt 
and the presumption that we can do without repentance. I think sacrament of penance goes against both sins against hope. You know, um, gives us uh, hope in the forgiveness of our sins so we don't have that despair of guilt, but also the presumption that we don't have to go to confession, that we can do without repentance. Sacrament of the anointing of the sick, like I celebrated this afternoon for that man who, who died. It's a sacrament of beautiful hope in times of serious illness and in the face of the closeness of death. The third thing, works of love and mercy. I mention this because if we live in hope, we don't just look forward to the afterlife. True hope moves us to spread the kingdom of God here and now. Our efforts to help others, efforts for justice and peace, service of the poor and the needy, can make this world, imperfect as it is with all the problems that we have, it makes, these things can make the world a better place. We can touch other people's lives through our love with the hope of the gospel. We cannot limit our concern to salvation in the next life because that limits the horizon of hope. And hope is not merely a matter of personal salvation. Remember, it has a social dimension. We're called to extend and spread hope like the saints did. Also, though science and technology can improve people's lives, more than technological and scientific progress is needed to make life truly worth living. In the words of Pope Benedict, it is not science that redeems. It's not science that redeems man. Man is redeemed by love. One of my favorite lines in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is this, and it's on the top of your third page there. There is some good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. People of hope fight for the good. Amid all the sin and evil, the darkness of the world, we're called to live in hope. Another quote that I really like, that G.K. Chesterton wrote about fairy tales. And it's on your handout. Fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales, fairy tales tell children the dragons can be killed. Think about that. People of hope know there's evil. They overcome it with good. They fight against it. Think about people who experience the horror of Nazi concentration camps. I've been to a few, Dachau and Auschwitz. It's very hard to walk through those camps and look at the photos. People physically abused, daily threatened by murderous death, enduring the loss of all property and privacy, and mourning the extinction of so many friends and relatives. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl pointed out that people in these horrible circumstances nevertheless reacted in radically different ways. 
Some killed themselves to spare. Others praised God even as they walked into certain death. Maximilian Kolbe, Edith Stein. As Frankel remarked, and this is on your paper, he who has a why to live, a why to live for, can bear with almost any how. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. Man needs hope to live. It's indispensable for those who encounter suffering of whatever depth. Pope Benedict wrote, and the quote is there, the present, even if it is arduous, can be lived and accepted if it leads towards a goal. If we can be sure of this goal, and if this goal is great enough to justify the effort of the journey. Well, we have such a goal. God's house, the banquet feast of heaven. I end here with advice about living in hope from the doctor of the church, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. The quote is there, Wait upon the Lord, be faithful to his commandments. He will elevate your hope and put you in possession of his kingdom. Wait upon him patiently. Wait upon him by avoiding all sin. He will come, doubt it not, and in the approaching day of his visitation, which will be that of your death and his judgment, he will himself crown your holy hope. Place all your hope in the heart of Jesus. It is a safe asylum, for he who trusts in God is sheltered and protected by his mercy. To this firm hope, join the practice of virtue, and even in this life, you will begin to taste the ineffable joys of paradise. Thank you. At the table I was at, um, they were talking about both, but I think there was more, uh, was it more despair that you were saying, I think? Yeah. You were saying presumption? You know what we were talking about, presumption? You know where you see presumption, for example? You see it among Catholics who say, oh, I don't need to go to confession, for example. That's the sin of presumption. Um, there's also presumption um, among evangelicals, you know, like, okay, I'm saved, always saved, I don't have to worry about it, you know? So that's kind of the sin of presumption. I'm generalizing, I know. So I thought they were pretty common, but, but you also see, um, you know, in, in the table that I was at, you know, um, you know, people who are despair about, you know, because things are getting worse in the world or whatever. Um, or, you know, so they were saying both, really. But you were saying more uh, presumption. Would you want to share with everybody? In what sense? Why would you say that? Uh, you'd actually already touched on the points that we were talking about, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was reading a, I don't usually read blogs, but there was a, uh, I think I was preparing a homily the other day, and it had to do with the, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you know, the unforgivable sin. And um, the, uh, of course, we, we consider that um, basically in our tradition, 
based in Scripture, that it's really the unforgivable sin is um, that, uh, what do you call it, no, not repenting. You know, it's, it's that impenitence to the end, not turning to God for his mercy. Because you don't give an opportunity then uh, to be forgiven. So anyhow, blasphemy. But I was reading all the responses, and there were many responses on this blog that I was like, oh my goodness, this is so sad. Many people were writing in how they thought that, they, that their sins were unforgivable. I mean, terrible, <laughs> terrible guilt that people were writing and they, you could tell, I don't know if it, was the, if it was a psychological thing of scrupulosity, or, but people basically saying, I don't think God loves me. I don't think God will ever forgive me. I think I'm going to hell. I mean, I saw that, like many responses. And I was wondering, how many people are like that? Now, I have, you know, in, in confession, met with people who are scrupulous, and that's more of a psychological problem than it is a spiritual problem. It's connected. But people who have that, and that, what a terrible, it's like obsessive, it's like OCD. It's like obsessive compulsive disorder. So a person keeps going back to confession because they don't feel they're forgiven. Even though they've already confessed the sin, they have to go back and confess it again. That's more of a psychological problem. Uh, but if it wasn't, if a person was psychological nor, normal and thought that way, then it's really despair, you know. Um, you know what also, pride we have to be careful. That's the root of all sins. And I remember someone who had committed a very, this wasn't in confession. Someone had committed, a very good person, someone who was highly regarded and uh, successful and, and really virtuous, committed a very bad sin, a moral sin. Now, this wasn't in confession. This was in kind of a counseling situation. <coughs> The person couldn't forgive himself, um, went to confession, someone else, could not forgive himself, felt so bad, terrible, that he had fallen in the way that he did. He was filled with guilt. He could not forgive himself. That was so hard, and I was trying to help. I said, God loves you. Trust in God. He loves you. Yes, you fell. What was the real problem there? It wasn't the sin he committed. It was pride. He couldn't accept in his virtue that he had done something so bad. I think God allowed him to commit that sin to teach him to really ultimately save him from his pride. Because ultimately, he did recognize that that was a sin of pride. What he did, he broke down. But then, he was freed of his guilt. He realized, I thought so much of myself. I thought I was so good. You know? I don't know if that relates to this, but... Do we have any other questions Aaron. for Bishop? What's that? Is that right? Yeah. So you know. Yeah. I'm okay. God allows. Yeah. Yes, little Bishop. Uh, 
something's been kind of running through my head ever since you brought up that that quote of he who has the why to live can bear almost any how uh, and how that relates to the despair. One thing's behind a quote from, that's attributed back to all the way back to Julius Caesar. He said that it's easier to find men to volunteer to die than those who are willing to suffer with pa- suffer with patience. I mean, one uh, proclivity to proclivity to give away to despair or to fear things so, things so far. I was wondering if you have any thoughts of why it why it is such things hold sway over us and how that relates to the falling into despair. Yeah. Would you say that quote again? I had not heard that before. He said, it's easier to find men to volunteer to die than those willing to suffer with patience. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting... I, have, I not, had not heard that quote before. You know, I think, you know, it gets to the whole mystery of suffering. Um, I think that... How would I describe this? I've been with so many people who've... Um, have have different reactions to their suffering. Sometimes there are stages that people go through because at first people can be so troubled in their spirit and um, because they their focus was so much on things in this life that um, the bad news, for example, of a terminal illness just can destroy them. And, and it can end up in severe depression, things like that. Um, but then there are others who, in the face of maybe the same illness or the same suffering, have a certain spirit of acceptance in which they don't lose their inner peace or their inner joy. And I think it's um, not that it's easy for them to carry the cross that they have, but they have the virtue of hope basically, that they have this confidence in God's love for them. They have that great hope that they're, so they, they have the serenity, the peace and serenity that comes with that. Um, I could give, and I don't remember if I spoke in theology on tap on the mystery of suffering, or I spoke somewhere on the, oh no, that was a group of young adults in Fort Wayne, and it wasn't theology on tap, it was during a holy hour. They asked me to speak on the mystery of suffering, which is not an easy thing to talk about, how to find meaning in suffering. So it's related to this, this whole uh, idea of hope as well. But I think it's, um, if we develop, if we grow in that virtue of hope, suffering takes on a whole new dimension for us when it comes into our lives. So... And even can be, we see it as redemptive, you know, as Christ taught. We make up in our sufferings for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, as St. Paul says. Good night, everybody. Thank you again, Bishop Rhodes.